0: Please turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19 and also to Hebrews 12, verse 18. I'd like to read the Old Testament text first this morning. It will be the sermon text, Exodus chapter 19, and then we will go to the New Testament reading Hebrews 12, 18 through 29. We will be reading all of Exodus chapter 19 this morning. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. And may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death." No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds, a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. He said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day there will be thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, "Go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them." And Moses said to the Lord, "The people cannot come up to the mount to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, "Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it." And the Lord said to him, "Go down, and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Let us go now to Hebrews chapter 12 and read verses 18 through 29. Here in this wonderful passage, the old covenant is contrasted with the new But you, the writer to the Hebrews says, to new covenant believers, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant." And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth. Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more. So far, the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. The text before us today is rather lengthy, and I did go back and forth in my mind wondering if I should preach Exodus 19 in two or three parts or take it all at once. And as you can see, I've decided to preach it all at once. And the reason is so that we might better appreciate the unity of this passage for Although the story of Exodus 19 could be divided into two or three parts, it really tells one story. And the story that is told in Exodus 19 is very important. I hope you have the ability to really focus this morning, brothers and sisters, uh, and to see the importance of Exodus chapter 19. Here in this passage, we have a record of the Lord beginning to call the nation of Israel into a special Covenantal relationship with himself. I said we have the beginning of this record because the story of God establishing this covenant with the nation of Israel starts here in Exodus 19, but it does not conclude until the end of Exodus 24. So from the beginning of Exodus 19 through to the end of Exodus 24, we learn about the establishment of of the old Mosaic Covenant. Here in chapter 19, the covenant is proposed. In chapters 20 through 2319, we find covenant laws. The the laws of the covenant are set before us, at least briefly. In 2320 through 33, we find a promise concerning covenant land, that is to say the land of Canaan, And in chapter 24, the covenant is finally confirmed. Uh, There we see the confirmation of this covenant. So, Exodus 19-24 through describes God entering into a covenant with the nation of Israel. This happened as Israel encamped at the base of Mount Sinai, as Moses went up on the mountain, as the glory of God descended on the mountain as a consuming fire. In chapter 19, which is our text for today... The covenant is introduced or it is proposed to the people of Israel by the Lord. I think an illustration may be helpful here. Would you think for a moment about the marriage covenant? When is a marriage covenant established or made? It is made on the wedding day when a man and a woman stand before God and witnesses to make vows to one another. This is when the covenant is confirmed. On that day and not beforehand But as you know, rarely will a man and woman get married spontaneously on on the spur of the moment. You know, they're standing there one moment and they say, let's get married, and then they are married. It doesn't work that way. Um, Instead, uh, before the wedding day, there will be a proposal and there will be an engagement period. And even if the engagement period is very brief, it will involve planning and preparation, not only for the wedding day itself, but but for the marriage relationship. Uh, that is how things work. There will be a proposal and then planning and preparation, and then finally the, the consummation of the marriage covenant. And I think this illustrates what is happening here in Exodus 19 through 24. In Exodus 24, the covenant between the Lord and Israel will be confirmed. It is the wedding day, if you will. But in Exodus 19, the covenant is proposed. Again, in chapters 20 through 23, we find laws and promises which bring clarity concerning the terms of the ongoing relationship between the Lord and Israel. And I suppose we may compare this to the engagement or betrothal period wherein a couple makes preparations for marriage. And if I may push this illustration just a little bit further, rarely does a couple get married spontaneously or instantaneously. And neither do couples typically get engaged spontaneously either No often there is a significant relationship that in time leads to a proposal and then to marriage. And in a similar way, Yahweh's proposal and covenant union with Israel did not appear out of the blue either. Are you following with me? Um, There was a prior relationship. In fact, it too was a covenantal relationship. And this relationship went back to the days of Abraham. It is important, brothers and sisters, for us to remember that before the Lord entered into a covenantal relationship with the nation of Israel in the days of Moses, he made a covenant with Abraham, wherein he promised to, among other things, bless them him with many offspring, to give him the land of Canaan, and to make a kingdom out of his descendants. You remember all of that. It began in Genesis chapter 12. It was... Expanded in Genesis chapter 15 and 17, you may read all about the covenant that God made with Abraham uh, on your own time. I'll spare you the details here. Uh, But it's important for us to remember this covenant, the covenant that God made with Abraham many hundreds of years prior to, or hundreds of years rather, prior to the covenant that God transacted with Israel in the days of Moses. This, This Mosaic covenant, as we call it, did not appear out of the blue, but it was a natural outgrowth of a covenant previously made. For now, I wish to remind you of this, that when God redeemed Israel from Egyptian bondage, when He led them into the wilderness and entered into this covenant with them, all of it was in fulfillment to promises previously made. We are to remember that these were the children of Abraham. These were the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is also called Israel. The covenant that God made with the people of Israel in the days of Moses was in fulfillment to covenant promises previously made. And so as you can see, the story that is told in Genesis and Exodus, indeed the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, it's one unified story. Here we are simply witnessing the development of things. So as I've said, the text that is before us today is rather long, but now that I've established that this section of the book of Exodus, chapters 19 through 24, is about the, the making of a covenant, I do believe I can explain the meaning of this passage, Exodus chapter 19, in three relatively brief parts. One, we must consider the parties of this covenant. Two, we will consider the terms of this covenant. And three, we will consider the purpose of this covenant that God made with Israel in the days of Moses. First, let us consider the parties or the participants Involved in this covenant. Uh, Yahweh is the first participant in this covenant. It was Yahweh who promised or proposed, rather, this covenant and also set its terms. Uh, The text is clear about this. Uh, Look with me now at verse 2. Israel set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. By the way, do you notice the repetition, the emphasis that Israel is now at Sinai? It's marking kind of a new section of the book of of Exodus. Uh, Israel was in Egypt. Israel was wandering in the wilderness. Now they are at Sinai, and there's going to be a lot of things that happen uh, with Israel at Sinai. They're encamped there, uh, at the mountain. They were encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him, to Moses, out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, etc. Here I'm simply drawing your attention to the fact that it is Yahweh himself who initiates the making of this covenant. Covenants always involve at least two parties. Covenants are agreements after all, and it takes two to make an agreement. And yes, Yahweh was indeed a participant in this covenant. He was one of the parties involved, but again, I'm drawing your attention to the fact that though he was a participant, this does not mean that he stood on equal ground with those whom he entered into covenant with. And this is true of all of the covenants that God has made with man when two men make covenants with, make a covenant with each other, it's possible that they stand on an equal plane with each other. It's possible that each of them initiate uh, the covenant mutually. But not so in the covenants that God makes with man. It is God who initiates and sets the terms, and man can only reciprocate. Uh, never is it the other way around. And the reason for this should be obvious. God is God. He is supreme over all of his creation. God is not obliged to give man anything except justice, which is in keeping with his nature. But man is obliged to give God everything, for God is the creator and redeemer, and man his creature. Uh, So this is an important thing to note. Uh, Men do sometimes enter into covenants with one another, and sometimes they stand on an equal footing, an equal plane. They They are equals as they stand before one another and enter into some agreement, a business agreement or otherwise, but not so with the covenants that God has made with man. He initiates and He is supreme. In other words, never has man been in a position to initiate a covenant with God. This was true even before man fell into sin. It is certainly true afterward. When we consider the covenants that God has made with man in history, we must confess that though God is a participant... He is always the one to initiate. He is the one who sets the terms. He initiated the covenant that was made with Adam in the Garden of Eden. He set the terms of it. He established the rewards for obedience and the curses for disobedience. In the covenant that was made with Adam, Adam could only respond. The same may be said of the covenant that God transacted with Abraham and with David and with all of his elect in the new covenant. It is the Lord who initiates It is the Lord who establishes the terms, for He is God and we are His creatures. You can see then that there is a sense in which all of God's covenants are gracious. There is a sense in which all of God's covenants are gracious. And no, I'm not denying that the covenant that God made with Adam in the garden was a covenant of works. It was in fact the covenant of works. Nor am I denying that this covenant, which we are considering today was a covenant of works. And I'll say more about that in just a moment. But I'm observing that all of God's covenants are rooted in the kindness of God. They are are gracious and kind. For God is not obliged to enter into covenants with man. He is not duty-bound to offer us anything beyond justice. But God is merciful, gracious, and kind. He has stooped down and has entered into covenants with man, wherein He offers His creatures something more than what they have, By nature, we need to reflect upon that, brothers and sisters. When we read the scriptures, we see that God has entered into covenantal relationships with man. He's entered into these arrangements with them. And what is He doing? Even with Adam in the garden, He's saying, I'll give you more than this, I'll offer you something more than what you have by nature. The Lord is the first party in this covenant that we are considering. And who is the other party? Answer, in the days of Moses, Yahweh entered into covenant with the people of Israel. This is apparent throughout this text, but especially in verse 7, where we read, So Moses came and called the elders of the people of Israel, their, their leaders and their representatives, and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him All the people, that is all the people of Israel, answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. So you could see that there is an agreement being made between Yahweh and the people of Israel. Yahweh initiates, Yahweh says, here are the terms of this covenant. Here's how this relationship that I'm entering into with you will work. And Moses brings the terms down to the people. Here's the the offer, as it were. And the people respond saying, it sounds good to us. All that the Lord has spoken, uh, we will do. So then the parties of this covenant are Yahweh and Israel. This covenant that the Lord made with Israel is sometimes called the Mosaic Covenant. And it is called this not because the covenant was made with Moses, but through him. Moses was the mediator Of this covenant. And this too is very apparent in our text. The Lord spoke to Israel through Moses. It was Moses who went up on the mountain, spoke with God face to face, as it were, and then came back down again to deliver the word of the Lord to the people. Moses was God's great prophet and priest in those days, he was God's servant, he was the mediator of the old covenant. The Lord redeemed Israel and entered into covenant with them through God's servant, Moses. You know, this observation that the Mosaic covenant was made between the Lord and Israel may seem very basic. But if we forget this, this very basic thing, then we are bound to make great errors in our interpretation of the Old Testament Scriptures. Look at where we are in the Scriptures, brothers and sisters. If you have your Bibles open, you don't need to have them open. You can just listen. I understand that's what many of you are doing right now. But if you were to have them open and you were to see how many pages precede the passage that we're in, and then if you were to see how many pages come after the passage we're in before we come to the New Testament, you'll notice that there are very few pages before and there are very many pages after Uh, this passage that we are considering today. We're we're only at Exodus 19. We are still near the beginning of the story of the Bible. Nearly everything written in the Old Testament Scriptures from this point onward took place within the context of the Old Mosaic covenant Covenant and the Kingdom of Israel, which was established and governed by this covenant. Are you following me? Nearly everything that took place that is recorded for us in the pages of the Old Testament from this point onward took place within the context of this covenantal relationship, this agreement that God entered into with the nation of Israel. So if we, if we miss that fact, if we forget that fact, we're bound to misinterpret uh, the Old Testament scriptures. The book of Genesis tells us about the kingdom of creation It also reveals to us the covenant of works that God made with Adam in the garden which he broke as well as the covenant of common grace which the Lord made with all creation in the days of Noah. These two covenants the Adamic and the Noahic they govern the kingdom of creation but Genesis also tells us about the covenant that God made with Abraham. The Lord called Abraham out from the nations and promised to make a great nation from his offspring. This nation that would come from him would bless all nations for from this nation the Messiah would emerge. This is why some have called the book of Genesis the prologue or, or the introduction to the rest of the Old Testament. Genesis tells the backstory, story, but as you can see, in only a few pages, everything comes to focus on the kingdom of Israel and on the old Mosaic Covenant, which governed that kingdom. Again, almost everything that is written from this point onward was written in the context of Old Covenant Israel, who lived under the Mosaic Covenant, which is established here in Exodus 19 through 24. If we miss or forget this, we will make terrible terrible mistakes, I think, in our interpretation and our application of the Old Testament scriptures from this point onward. Before moving on to consider the terms and purpose of this covenant, I think it would be good for us to take a moment and to reflect upon the kindness of God to enter into covenants with man so that we might give him appropriate praise and thanks. Perhaps we can do this by asking a question. What does God gain By entering into covenants with man. What does God gain by entering into covenants with man? When he made that covenant with Adam. When he made that covenant with Abraham and with Israel and with David. When he made the new covenant ratified in Christ's blood. What does God gain? And the answer is very simple. He gains nothing at all. He gains nothing at all. And the reason for this is very simple too. It is impossible for God to gain anything. For God is the fullness and source of all life and blessedness. Nothing can be added to God. For he is eternal. He is infinite. He is perfectly blessed. He is the eternal, almighty, and unchanging one. Nothing can be added to him. And this is what the Apostle Paul means when he asks, who has given a gift to the Lord that he might be repaid? You know, it's a rhetorical question here. Who has ever given a gift to the Lord that would would make the Lord now uh, indebted to to the person who gave the gift? Uh, The answer is implied, and it is no one. And then Paul explains why, saying, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. This is such a profound statement from the Apostle in Romans 8.35-36. through 36. No one has ever added anything to God. No one has ever given Him anything that He did not already possess because He is God. In fact, God... God is the source of all life. Everything that is comes from Him and returns to Him. We cannot add anything at all to God. What did God gain by entering into covenants with man? Nothing at all. Who benefits then? The answer is His creatures benefit. When the Lord transacted the covenant of works with Adam in the garden, He offered Adam and his descendants, life abundant, life eternal, life in glory, should he go on living in perfect, exact, and perpetual obedience to the terms of the covenant? Who would have benefited if that covenant were kept? Not God, but Adam and the whole human race and him. And who was to benefit from the covenants that God made with Abraham and his descendants, with Israel in the days of Moses, with David and his descendants? Well, the answer is twofold, for these covenants do have a dual nature to them. On the one hand, the physical descendants of Abraham would be blessed in the land and in an earthly way should they keep the terms of these three covenants that God transacted with them. On the other hand, all of the spiritual children of Abraham would be blessed spiritually and for all eternity in the new heavens and earth. And who are the true children of Abraham, these spiritual children of Abraham? They are those who have believed in the promised Messiah, they are not only the Hebrews, but also from amongst the Gentiles. And this is what Paul so clearly teaches in Romans 8 and 9 and in Galatians 3. This is what Jesus himself taught in John 8. But Romans 9 8 is especially clear. There, Paul says, This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Here the apostle is establishing that the true children of Abraham are those who have believed in the promises of God. So who benefits? That's the question I'm asking. It is not God, uh, but, it is, but it is his creatures who benefit from these covenants. And as it pertains to these covenants that were transacted with, with Israel, who benefits from them? Well, the fleshly descendants of Abraham benefited in some ways. They, bless, they were blessed in an earthly way, should they keep the covenants that were made with Israel Abraham, Israel, and David. That is true. But it is all who believe in the promises that were made to Abraham concerning the coming Messiah. These are blessed in an eternal way. I'm trying to draw your attention to the fact that God is kind. God is merciful. When we consider these covenants, we must realize that God did not stand on equal footing with man. Certainly, he was not lower, as if he were indebted to man, to to offer something good to man. No, God is God and we are His creatures. He is here condescending. He is here making Himself low. He is here offering us something we do not deserve. Earthly speaking, the Israelites, the physical descendants of Abraham, would be blessed in the land should they obey God and keep the terms of these covenants. This would also be true of anyone who wished to join themselves to Israel physically. And again, spiritually speaking, it is all who have faith And the unconditional promises made to Abraham concerning the Messiah, who would in the fullness of time bless the nations by paying the price of our sins, accomplishing our eternal redemption, defeating the evil one and undoing his work. These would be blessed, those who believe in the promises of God. Yes, the Messiah has come, brothers and sisters. He has fulfilled the promises previously made. And this is why the old covenant has passed away. It has been fulfilled Now the kingdom of heaven is here with power. It is the new covenant that governs this kingdom which has Christ as Lord. And who are the beneficiaries of this new covenant? Again, it is not God but man. It is all who have turned from their sins and have placed their faith in Jesus the Messiah who is freely offered to them in the gospel. Not from the Jews only, but people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. The point is this, God's grace is truly marvelous. He's kind to his creatures. He blesses us with earthly blessings. And he offers us spiritual and eternal blessings too. All through Israel's precious Messiah. Let us now fix our minds back upon the covenant that God God transacted with Israel through Moses. Who were the parties or who were the participants? The Lord and Israel were. Moses was the mediator. But what were the terms of this covenant? What were the terms? Covenants always involve terms. When men make covenants with one another, they first agree upon the terms. When you attend a wedding, you should listen carefully to the wedding vows. I do hope that the couple uses the traditional wedding vows. There are, there's a reason why those vows are, are traditional, uh, because they do... Uh, get to the essence of what a marriage is and what the commitment should be that a husband and wife make to one another. But listen carefully to the wedding vows that people make in their marriage ceremony. Those vows are important because they summarize the terms of the covenant that the two are entering into. If you finance a house or a car, you will enter into a kind of covenant. Did you know that? take out a car loan or a home loan. You, you enter into a kind of covenant. The lender will offer you a loan, a loan of money for a certain time and, and for a certain interest rate, and you, the borrower, will agree to pay the loan amount back plus interest in a timely manner according to the terms of, of the loan. If one of the parties of the covenant... Uh, or contract we might call it, fails to uphold their end of the bargain, then the covenant is broken and there are consequences. And even these consequences will be spelled out and agreed upon ahead of time. You, you don't enter into any sort of covenant or contract being oblivious to the terms, do you? I hope you don't. I mean, I understand no one reads the fine print. Uh, we, we, we often trust Whoever is guiding us through the process, the documents are massive, of course. But the point is this, the basic terms of the agreement and and the consequences for breaking the terms of the agreement, they are stated not after the document is signed, but beforehand. That's how it should work. That's how it is supposed to work. But here's the point. All covenants have terms. The two or more parties make commitments to each other. And the rewards for keeping the terms and the consequences for breaking the terms must be clearly communicated ahead of time. And so it is here with the covenant that God made with Israel through Moses. What are the terms of this covenant? You will notice that they are very briefly summarized in Exodus 19, 5 through 6, where the Lord speaks to Israel through Moses saying, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What were Israel's obligations according to the terms of this covenant? What were they to do? Stated very succinctly, they were to obey God's voice. They were to live in obedience to the Lord. They were called to keep the covenant. Well, we might ask, what what laws were they to obey? What standards were they going to be called to keep? Well, as I have said already, we will find covenant laws in chapters 20 through 2319. Remember, the covenant is here proposed, but the covenant will not be made or ratified until Exodus 24. And in between Exodus 19 and 24, uh, the terms are, are clarified. The laws of the covenant are set out. There we will find the 10 words or commandments, which are a summary of God's moral law. There we will also find civil laws and ceremonial laws. The section is actually very brief. But the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy will pick up where Exodus leaves off to greatly expand upon uh, these laws and and to clarify them and to deal with them with more specificity. Here in Exodus 19, the Lord states the terms very succinctly. Again, the Lord said, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, etc. Uh, So Here it is stated. Here's how the relationship is going to work. If you will do this, then I will do this. If you will obey me, then I will bless you. you. You will be my treasured possession. What would be the reward for Israel's obedience? Please pay very careful attention to this, brothers and sisters. It will clarify so many very common misunderstandings about the old Mosaic covenant. What would be the reward for Israel's obedience? Again, they would be the Lord's treasured possession among all peoples. In other words, the Lord's blessing would be upon them. What would be the punishment for their disobedience? It is implied that the Lord would cast them off should they live in disobedience and break the terms Of this covenant. You can see then what the agreement is. If you will obey me, if you will keep the terms of the covenant, you, Israel, will be blessed on earth. You will be my treasured possession on earth. You will flourish on earth in the land that I am giving you. And the punishment again is implied. Should you fail to hold up your end of the bargain? Should you live in disobedience to me? Should you break the terms of the covenant? I will cast you off as my treasure, treasured possession. If you know the rest of the story of the Old Testament, you will see that this is exactly what took place. What is stated succinctly and implied here in Exodus 19 is stated much more thoroughly in other places. For example, listen to Deuteronomy 11:13 13 through 17. Again, in Deuteronomy, these laws are Expanded upon and clarified as they are restated before Israel enters into the land of Canaan. But listen to Deuteronomy 11, 13-17. If, and if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul, He will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Do, do you hear it? If you, will, if you will obey these commandments, these laws, what will be the result? You're going to be blessed where? In heaven for all eternity? What is the promise according to the terms of the Old Mosaic Covenant? Should the nation of Israel obey the commandments of God, where will they be blessed? On earth. They'll be blessed on earth. They'll be blessed as a nation. They'll be the Lord's treasured possession. They will enjoy rain and fruitful harvest, you see. They will eat and drink to the full. They will be blessed on earth. Take care, I continue in Deuteronomy 11 lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. In other words, take care that you do not disobey the Lord and break the terms of the covenant. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and He will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord Is giving to you. This is just one example of a text that clarifies the terms of the covenant that was transacted between the Lord and Israel in the days of Moses. The terms were obey. The reward for obedience was blessing where? In the land, on the earth. And the curses are implied here in Exodus chapter 19. If the people disobey and break the covenant, the Lord will cast them off as his treasured possession on earth. So, what was Israel's side of the deal? In brief, they were to obey God and keep the terms of the covenant. If they obeyed, they would be blessed. If they disobeyed, they would be cursed. And what were God's obligations to Israel? Simply put, having entered into this covenant, He was obliged to have Israel as His treasured possession among all peoples, should they keep their commitments, you see. He had to hold up His side of the bargain, as it were. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, what about the promises the Lord had made to Israel concerning the land of Canaan? The people being as the sand of the seashore and of kings arising from them. What about the promises of God concerning the Messiah? Wasn't the Lord obligated to keep those promises too, no matter if Israel was obedient or disobedient? Do you, do you notice that I'm stressing here the word promise? And I'm saying, was he obligated to keep these promises no matter if Israel were obedient or disobedient? The answer is yes. Those promises that were uttered to Abraham so long ago, those promises were unconditional promises that God made to Abraham. They would surely come to pass no matter what the people did or failed to do. The Lord would bring Israel into Canaan. The Lord would make them a great multitude and a great nation. Kings would come from them. But now we see that something else is happening here in Exodus chapter 19. This covenant that God is making with Israel has conditions attached to it. They would be blessed as a nation. They would flourish in the land and would continue as God's treasured possession should they obey the laws that the Lord gave to him. Here we are to see that the blessings of the Mosaic covenant were conditioned upon obedience. This was a natural outgrowth of the conditional conditional elements of the covenant that God made with Abraham In Genesis 17. In the Abrahamic covenant, there were unconditional promises made, but there were also conditional elements too uh, that had this communicated to him obey and be blessed, disobey and be cursed. Here in Exodus 19, we see the natural outgrowth of all of that. Now would probably be a good time to ask the question what are the terms of the new covenant? which God has made with his elect. What are the terms of the new covenant which God has made with his elect? If the terms of the old covenant were obey and be blessed in the land, what are the terms of the new? What must we do to be blessed under the new covenant? The answer is that we must believe in the promised Messiah. We must trust Not in our own good works, not in our own obedience, but in the work and in the obedient, the obedience that has been accomplished for us. The blessings of the new covenant are indeed conditioned upon obedience. The difference is that they are conditioned not upon our obedience, but upon the obedience of Christ, who lived for us, who died for us, and rose for us. Do you understand the difference here, brothers and sisters, between the Old Covenant and the New? They're very different covenants, aren't they? If we consider the terms of the Old Covenant, uh, we we see that this was a covenant of works. Do you wish to be blessed in the land, Israel? Then here is what you must do. You must obey. You must keep my laws. But when we come to the New Covenant ratified in Christ's blood, we see a very different arrangement. Do you wish to be blessed, not just in the land, brothers and sisters, but spiritually and eternally in the new heavens and new earth? Do you wish to have your sins washed away? Do you wish to have a right relationship with God? Does the New Covenant say, then you must obey God's law to have these blessings? It does not. The terms of the New Covenant are very different. They say, Believe upon Christ. Trust in the work that He has done for you. Trust in His obedience. He has been obedient. You have been rebellious. But He has been obedient for you. And He has died in your place. You deserve to die. For the wages of sin is death. But He has died in your place. He has bore the wrath of God for you. Believe upon Him. And trust in His work. So the Old and the New Testaments, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, they're certainly related to one another. The New Covenant is the fulfillment of the Old. But the terms of these covenants are very different. The Old Covenant was a covenant of works, but the New Covenant is the covenant of grace. Why do we call it the covenant of grace? We call it the covenant of grace because we come to receive the blessings of this covenant, not by works, but, it, but as the free gift of God to us he holds out these blessings to us and, and, and he says, receive. You don't earn a gift. Do you realize that? You don't work for a gift. No one has ever worked for a gift. If, if a gift has to be worked for, then it's not a gift. It's payment. It's payment. But God has given us salvation freely in Christ Jesus as a gift. And, and how, do, how are gifts received? They are received with, with open hands they are received freely you see without any without any contingency really the most famous bible verse communicates the terms of the new covenant very well when it says for god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life here are the terms what are the terms for receiving the blessings of the new covenant belief in christ These are the terms for us. I think also of what Jesus said in response to the question that the Jews asked him in the wilderness. They they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? They wanted to know how they could earn life. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Wow, what a contrast. There, Jesus in the wilderness with, with, with Israel as he ministers to them. Um, what a contrast between Jesus and Moses here. Moses in the wilderness with the people of Israel. Here's the work of God that you must do. Believe in him who he has sent. And what about that wonderful passage in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, which says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So how do we come to be saved? It is by God's grace, received by faith, and even this faith, the ability to believe, is a gift from God. The new covenant is the covenant of grace. In this covenant, God has committed to give eternal life to all who trust in Jesus the Messiah and in the work that He has accomplished for them. The old Mosaic covenant was a covenant of works, and that covenant God committed to bless Israel in the land, provided that they obey him and held up their side of the deal. Please allow me to briefly mention two common misunderstandings about the Mosaic Covenant. One, there are some, even many, within the Reformed tradition who call the covenant that God made with Israel through Moses an administration of the Covenant of Grace. They call the old Mosaic Covenant, in brief, the Covenant of Grace. And I do understand why they have this impulse. They see that God's grace was present and active in these days. They see that the promise concerning the Messiah was contained within this Mosaic Covenant. But when, they, but when we consider the terms of this covenant, I think it is clear that it is substantially a covenant of works, a covenant, um, a covenant which could, and in fact would, be broken. This old Mosaic covenant, when we consider the terms of it, was a, a covenant of works, and Israel would break this covenant. Blessings in the land were conditioned upon the obedience of Israel. Was God's saving grace present in the days of Moses? Was God's saving grace present in the days of Moses? Was, was the forgiveness of sins possible? Were heavenly and eternal blessings communicated to the people in those days? We must say, yes, certainly grace was available to those who lived in these days. But here, here, is, here is the key They came uh, to the people of Israel not by virtue of the terms of the old Mosaic Covenant. They came to the people as they believed upon the promises that were made to Abraham concerning the future Messiah. Do, do, Do you see the difference? The people were not forgiven from their sins. They were not saved for all eternity by virtue of the Mosaic Covenant itself, the terms of it. How were they How were they saved? How were their sins washed away? They were washed away as they believed in the promises that were entrusted to Abraham and to Israel. Um, that, that, that That is so key. Promises, mind you, are about things that will be done in the future. Promises are not about things that have been done in the past or will be done in the moment. When I make a promise, what am I saying to you? I will do such and such a thing. And we know that those who lived under the Old Covenant were saved by believing in the promises. This is the way the New Testament speaks. These were covenants of of promise they are called. In other words, they contained within them guarantees concerning future things. In other words, one day a Christ will come, the Messiah will come to accomplish our salvation. One day there will be a new covenant, which is better than the old. And it's through that covenant that you are saved, you see. It's through the terms of that covenant, which is the covenant of grace, the only covenant of grace, substantially speaking. It's through that covenant that you are saved. I'm here speaking as if in the days of Moses. The people believed in promises, and promises have to do with future things. So was grace present in the days of Moses? Yes, absolutely. It was present in the form of promise. In fact, the Messiah who would eventually come was prefigured so beautifully in the old Mosaic Covenant. Uh, It's already been prefigured before us in in the Exodus events themselves, but just wait until we come to the construction of the tabernacle and come to consider, consider temple worship. So much there is picturing the Christ to come. So yes, men and women were saved in those days from their sins, but we're saying they were not saved by the Mosaic Covenant according to its terms. What did those terms have to do with blessing in the land? Blessing in the land. And blessing in the land was conditioned upon obedience. This thing was a covenant of works. There's no way around it. It simply was. It had more in common with the covenant that was made with Adam in the garden than it has with the new covenant ratified in Christ's blood. The second common misunderstanding about the Mosaic covenant is that it offered life eternal to Israel through law keeping this error might be more familiar to you, for I know that many of you were raised in dispensationalism. But this is a very common misunderstanding. Again, it is that the Mosaic Covenant offered life eternal, heavenly life, spiritual life, to Israel through law-keeping. In other words, this view, this error, would say that in those days people were saved through law-keeping, but now we are saved by grace. That is... A terrible mistake to make. Uh, Life eternal was offered to Adam through law-keeping, but not to Israel. What was offered to Israel, should they obey God's voice and keep His law, again, were blessings on earth and the land that God would give them. That is all. Did some in Jesus' time misunderstand this? Yes, they did. The Pharisees, many of them misunderstood this. They thought they could earn salvation through law-keeping, but they were so very wrong about that. And Paul wrote things like this to set them straight. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That is Romans 3.20. This wasn't something new that Paul came up with. This wasn't a new truth. This was a a, a universal truth, a a truth that has been present in the world ever since Adam's fall into sin. It has never been possible for a human being to be justified, to be made right in God's sight through law-keeping ever since Adam broke the covenant of works that was made with him in the garden. Never possible. Not in Old Covenant Israel, uh, certainly not under the New Covenant Again, it's been this way since the fall. Men and women can only stand just or right before God by His grace through faith in the promised Messiah, not through obedience to the law. For all have sinned having violated this law in thought, word, and deed. How could we be justified through law keeping when we have already broken the thing over and over again and stand guilty before God as sinners? That way to salvation is closed off. The only way to be made right now with God after man's fall into sin is through faith in the Savior that God has provided. So, what were the terms of the Mosaic Covenant? Israel would be blessed by God in the land if they obeyed his voice. A principle is stated in a very brief way here, and it will be amplified in, the, in, in Exodus chapters 20 through 24, and even more so in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Lastly, let us consider the purpose of the Mosaic Covenant. And I do suppose this could be a sermon all of its own, it'll be very brief. Uh, We will have opportunities to elaborate upon this in future sermons, I'm I'm sure of it. But when the Lord redeemed Israel from Egypt, entered into this covenant with them and brought them into the promised land of Canaan, he created a holy nation governed by holy laws in a holy land. God would dwell in the midst of this people in a special way and they would be invited to commune with him. The worship of God would be central to the life of this people. Holy prophets, priests, and kings would serve amongst them. This nation was set apart from all the other nations of the earth as holy. They were to live for the glory of God and were invited to enjoy his presence. In other words, Old Covenant Israel, in this kingdom, the kingdom of God was prefigured on earth. Just picture the nations of the earth that existed in the days of Moses prior uh, to this moment here that we are considering. They are all common kingdoms. They are all heathen kingdoms, pagan kingdoms. None of them worship Yahweh as God. Now, all of a sudden, God having redeemed Israel from Egyptian bondage, there is a nation on earth. They will occupy a small sliver of land, but this nation will be holy. It will be holy. Its laws are holy. Its prophets, its priests, its kings are holy. There's a temple at the center of it. And what happens at the temple? There, Yahweh, the one true God, is worshipped and praised continuously, you see. God's glory is all of a sudden manifest here. I don't know how to communicate this briefly, but I can't be long, so I won't be long. But just picture it. What was God doing with Adam in the garden? You know, that was a temple. There the glory of God dwelt. And Adam enjoyed the presence of the Lord in paradise before sin into the world. Adam's job was to expand that garden temple that the Lord placed him in, but he broke the covenant and he was expelled from it. Now all of a sudden, the kingdom of God is present on earth again in miniature form, you see. But you could see the progress, can't you? You could see the progress. And you could see the progress when we come to the days of the new covenant when this gospel of the kingdom is going to go to all nations and the church is called the temple of the Holy Spirit. There is a great expansion of God's kingdom on earth in the days of the new covenant as the gospel goes to the furthest reaches of the earth. You, can you see it? And then picture the expansion once more when the new heavens and new earth are consummated. The whole earth will be filled with the glory of God. I mean you could just kind of, I don't know if you can visualize it the way that I have it in my mind, but you can see what God is doing here. So what I am saying is that there was a purpose for Israel as Israel under the old covenant. They were to worship God. They were to receive, keep and obey His word. They were to guard the precious and very great promises that were entrusted to them. They they were invited to commune with God, to enjoy His blessings and sing His praises. They were to be preserved as a people so that the promised Messiah could emerge into the world through them. Can you see the purpose of this covenant? Uh, some of the purposes were, were immediate. But here I wish to draw your attention further to this most supreme purpose of Israel under the old covenant. They were to serve the world as priests. They were to serve the world as priests. Again in verse 5, the Lord speaks to Israel, saying, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. It is not as if the Lord only owns Israel, He is God of all. Um, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This phrase is interesting. There would be a priesthood within Israel. We know this, but they would also be a kingdom of priests. And what did priests do except offer up sacrifices and prayers on behalf of the people? They functioned as intermediaries between God and man. And Israel was called to be a kingdom of priests. They, as a nation, were to function as intermediaries between God and the world. I wonder if you... Heard this little remark that the Lord made for all the earth is mine he's here claiming possession of all the earth I'm in other words Yahweh is saying I'm not just interested in having you all the earth is mine I am Lord of of all all the earth belongs to me so so in view from the beginning was something more than just Israel it's all the earth and Israel is to function as a priesthood Are, are you with me here They were to function as intermediaries. They they were to do something for others. They were to do something for others. And when we consider the totality of the story of Scripture, we know exactly what this means. We know exactly what this means. Israel was set apart as the Lord's treasured possession for a time to be a kingdom of priests. Under the Old Covenant, they were to call the nations to come and to worship Yahweh and to believe in His promised Messiah. And... In the fullness of time, the Messiah would emerge from them. In other words, God would use Israel to offer up the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus the Christ is the true Israel of God, the son of Abraham, the son of David, our great prophet, priest, and king. From Israel would emerge the Christ who would bless the nations. It would be through this Christ, the Jewish Messiah, that all nations would be called to come to God and to be reconciled to Him. Israel was to function as a, as a priesthood, as, as a nation, you see. So what was God's purpose for Old Covenant Israel? There were many purposes. Some were immediate, but the supreme purpose was to bring the Messiah into the world who would defeat the evil one and earn our salvation. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the only mediator between God and man. With all of that said, I think you would agree with me that this passage is very significant, For here the old Mosaic covenant is proposed to Israel by the Lord. He established the terms. He stated the purpose. And it is no wonder then that the people were called to consecrate themselves and were moved to such reverential fear of the Lord. We've hardly touched upon this element of the text, right? But here the people trembled before the Lord. Uh, They were sobered concerning this thing that was happening to them, this covenant that they were being called to enter into. This was a very serious thing. Now, Let me conclude, brothers and sisters, by reminding you of what the writer to the Hebrew said in that passage that was read at the beginning. We who live now under the new covenant of grace have come to something even greater. Something even greater. Something which cannot be shaken. Could the kingdom of Israel be shaken? Uh, Yes. Uh, Because it depended upon the obedience of man. This old covenant did. Man had to keep it. We have come to to something that cannot be shaken. Why? Because it depends not upon the obedience of you and I, but it depends upon the obedience of Christ. It depends upon the faithfulness of God. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. That is Hebrews 12, 28 through 29. Let us bow for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you have entered into covenants with man. We are grateful for these old covenants, the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic For you accomplished mighty things through them. Through them you brought the Christ into the world. Through them we see the precious and very great promises that were entrusted to our forefathers. We thank you for these covenants. Above all else we thank you for the new covenant, for the covenant of grace. Our only hope is here, O God. Uh, For we are unworthy sinners. We have violated your law and thought word and deed and are deserving of your just condemnation. But in the covenant of grace you have offered us a Savior. We thank you for Him. It's in Christ that we trust and all of God's people say, amen.